Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hey everyone, we are taking a quick break from North Korea to do an interview show. Don't worry, we'll be back to North Korea next week. But every city probably has one or more of those historical outlaw figures that people talk about. People talk about old gangsters, ruffians, rogues, ne'er-do-wells, etc. In Portland, Oregon, it's a guy called Jim Elkins, whom I have talked about and written about before. And in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it's a fellow called Bobby Bluejacket. He is one of their well-known historical outlaw figures. And my interviewee for today's episode was able to sit down and talk to Blue Jacket rather extensively. So he sought out this guy who subsumed the attention of Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1948, found him still alive, and wrote the story of his life. And we talked about safe cracking, what it's like to go to jail, and how a young Native American boy became the center of attention in a Midwestern town in the late 1940s. So enjoy. How did you come? How did you come across the subject matter? How did you get in? How did you get into writing this book? Uh, yeah, so the the answer is uh, extremely uh, circumstantially. You know, I had not sought, sought out Blue Jacket because uh, I did not know who he was um, back in 2011. Uh, which at that time I was working on a <clears throat> uh, kind of an annotated version of Larry Clark's photography book Tulsa. Um, which, if you're not familiar, is a pretty famous 1971 documentary photography book of uh, basically teenage um, amphetamine addicts and kind of petty criminals. And it's a very uh, raw um, and intimate look at their lives uh, in, of course, the city of Tulsa. And so researching that book, I kind of uh, began to acquaint myself with uh, the general landscape, you know, Tulsa politics, law enforcement, the the kind of context of the city itself, which is very interesting. Um, but one of the sources for that was a recording Larry had made in 1968. Um, and it's a few guys all uh, were shooting up uh, amphetamine, which actually came from uh, these over-the-counter nasal inhalers that they would break apart and extract the uh, active uh, methamphetamine from there. Uh, anyways, they're they're kind of ranting and raving, and one guy's complaining about how he was stuck in jail and, and couldn't get bond, and another guy says, well, you just should have talked to Blue Jacket, and uh, that name was very visceral to me, um, and so I wrote it down, and I asked Larry about who this Blue Jacket was, and he told me, uh, you know, oh, he's this uh, legendary outlaw figure. He uh, blew a guy's head off in 1948 in a teen rumble uh, at a hamburger stand. Uh, you know, we all looked up to him, and so that kind of caught my attention. Uh, and I began to kind of, you know, search for crumbs, see see anything I could find about him, which was very little. Uh, but he he uh, showed up as a source in uh, Ron Paget, who's another uh, uh, Tolson, uh, later became a famous New York City poet. But he wrote a memoir about his father, who was a legendary Tulsa bootlugger named uh, Wayne Paget. Anyways, Blue Jacket is a source in this memoir. And so through Ron, I was able to actually get in touch with Blue Jacket and uh, about, I think it was late. 2012 or maybe early 2013, I first went down to, to Tulsa and met uh, Mr. Blue Jacket at his tire shop. 
And uh, that's kind of how things officially got kicked off. So how did you approach him as a subject? Did you say, uh, hello, I heard you cited as a source, and I want to write a biography of you? Um, what was your pitch in approaching him for these interviews? Yeah, that's a good question. I probably should have mentioned that at the tail end of uh, my last comment there. So when I first approached him, he was still a source for this Larry Clark theoretical project that I was working on at the time. Um, and so I had really asked, I was asking him about this guy, Billy Mann, who was a subject in Larry's book. So when I first called him, I said, hey, you know, Ron gave me your number. Um, I know you were acquainted with Billy Mann. The two of them were involved in this kind of uh, extensive stolen goods ring in Texas and kind of the Midwest in the 60s. That's a whole other story. But anyways, I knew the two were acquainted. And so I really just had a kind of more um, stiff, formal interview with him regarding this Billy Mann character. But then at the end of the conversation, I was just kind of more, uh, you know, shooting the breeze with him, asking him questions about his life. And uh, he starts to tell me this very kind of like drifting poetic narrative of um, being born on Eastern Shawnee land and then growing up in the alleys of Tulsa, becoming a safe burglar, um, how he got involved in this killing, which the way he told it to me was quite different than how Larry told it to me or the news stories that it was this kind of um, fist fight gone wrong and wasn't this kind of assassination as it made out to be. So anyways, he, his uh, initial kind of uh, autobiographical telling to me really captured my imagination and and uh, was just really amazing. So from there, I started calling him just to kind of hear more about the story and not having much to do with this Larry Clark thing. And so over the next few months, uh, the Larry Clark project, for a number of reasons, just kind of drifted away and I became more and more obsessed with uh, Blue Jacket. So finally, one day I was like, you know, your life is absolutely crazy um, and it's just extremely powerful. I'd love to write the story of your life. And he was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, just kind of <laughs> went from there. So let's get into the story of his life. Who who was this guy? Uh, what were the circumstances that he was born into? And like he got started pretty young. How did those uh, inform his youth? Yeah, and you know, it's uh, doing interviews and things like this about this book is uh, is sometimes quite difficult because within any given year of Blue Jacket's life, he saw more activity than most people do over you know ninety years. So. His life is kind of this twisting, turning, um, kind of American narrative of, of uh, trying to make it any which way you can. And one of the things that interested me about his life is not that just that it's a kind of wild crime stories. There's um, really powerful uh, reflections upon his uh, Native American heritage and Eastern Shawnee man, but it's kind of all these disparate aspects put together as it's kind of this uh, untold uh, American history reflected through one man. And so um, to answer your question, he got his start. He was born on eastern Shawnee land in uh, northeastern Oklahoma, nearby the town of Wyandotte. And uh, his family life there um, was quite brutal. Um, There's a lot of poverty compounded by the fact that um, the eastern Shawnee, like so many tribes, had been uh, suffering oppression, violence, um, you know, uh, f- treaties that had been flipped on that had basically been pushing them west now for, you know, more than a hundred years prior. Um, and so pretty shortly after he was born, his mother took him and his other siblings and, uh, moved down to Tulsa to, uh, essentially seek out perhaps more opportunity. And so Blue Jacket essentially grew up in Tulsa in the depression. Um, and at very early on at the age of seven, he was basically forced to start providing for himself. And so his early life is really the story of, uh, you know, hustling newspapers and, uh, in alleyways, shining shoes, running in and out of clubs, and through that became acquainted with um, the uh, safe burglar culture 
of uh, 40s Tulsa. And that, that was kind of a, one of the first major turning points in his life. Okay, you said safe burglar culture. And I think that is totally fascinating because that sounds like it's like a job somebody could have or a scene somebody could fall into. Um, how, how prevalent was that? And how did you like uh, go about getting into it? Yeah. So, I mean, it definitely was a scene and I think uh, the guys in it treated it like a vocation. You know, it wasn't something that um, you did haphazardly. You know, there, there's some great books written kind of about safe burglar culture. Probably the most famous one is a memoir by a guy named Jack Black called You Can't Win, um, who was a uh, kind of opium addicted safe burglar uh, a few decades before Blue Jacket. Um, but it, it was a scene of a guy's, a lot of guys were kind of junkies or narcotics uh addicts um, a lot because they had to break into safes to get their score. These guys would hang out mostly in nightclubs, kind of jazz clubs, things like that. Um, They had a great affinity for um, well-tailored suits, uh, which is a kind of a thing that really dazzled the younger Blue Jacket looking up to these guys because they would go on a safe score and um, essentially get some money. They'd go out to the West Coast, pick up the latest fashions in Hollywood, and then bring them back to Tulsa and kind of peacock around town in, you know, fancy uh, shoes and shirts and things like that. Um, as far as it being a job, it really was treated that way because if you were part of the scene, you were seen as a thief with a capital T, where it, was, uh, it wasn't just, again, it wasn't just some haphazard thing. This was a life path you were on, and you considered yourself separate from society in that way. Um, and there was also a technical aspect in the sense that um, it, it's actually difficult to open a safe. And so there was this kind of passing of oral um, technical knowledge um, down through the generations, which also created this kind of subcultural bond. Um, A lot of the guys that taught Blue Jacket had actually come back from the war, used their GI Bill to attend safe and lock school, um, and thereby kind of get the tools of the trade and then would uh, disseminate those those techniques out to to younger folks like Blue Jacket. So Blue Jacket, he was known for being kind of a... um Teenage gangster, I think is maybe the right term to use. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. How did that end up playing out? Yeah, um, well, I think that was the vision um, that the prosecution tried to paint of him and his friends um, (laughs) in the ensuing 1948 trial, uh, which was the over the killing at the hamburger stand that I mentioned earlier. And uh, they had been labeled the quote unquote dirty dozen gang, uh, which was something Blue Jack had said he had never heard of before and wasn't a part of. but, you know, I think um, if they weren't quote-unquote gangsters, they certainly had formed a, a definitive burglary crew um, by the late 40s when a lot of these guys, when they were 15, 16, got themselves shipped overseas underage, um, were fighting in World War II, and then all kind of reconvened back in Tulsa in 48. And uh, what their world kind of consisted of is by day they were golden gloves, kind of amateur boxers, and they would tour around the region fighting in kind of Masonic halls, cafeterias, things like that, making some money. Um, a little reminiscent of uh, the famous boxing novel, Fat City, uh, if you're familiar with that, of just kind of uh, not necessarily the most uh, glorious arenas they were fighting in, but kind of just, you know, little halls, things like that. Although they occasionally did fight in the Coliseum, which was a big one in Tulsa at the time. Um but so by day they would do that and they would drive around in this uh, giant airport limousine, um, which, you know, people thought was to cart them around uh, to these matches. But the limousine was actually for um, their night gig 
which was as the safe burglary crew. And the reason they needed this limousine was because it had a wide enough passenger door that it could fit a large safe through. And so their days were kind of spent fighting in the day and then at night cruising around in a limousine um, trying to identify, you know, lumber yards, car dealerships, diners that had safes and uh, cracking them there and making off to the country uh, where they'd beat them open and kind of empty fields and things like that. Okay. And at the time, with cash being more prevalent, uh, a lot of places would just have a safe as a – that would be like standard operating procedure for them, right? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, a lot of um, – I mean, you see like jewel thieves and stuff in, uh, in later decades are, were still prevalent. Um, but for Blue Jacket, he really kind of got, got away from safe burglary by the early 60s, frankly, just because checks and credit cards and things started to happen. But, but back in the 40s, it was just cash was king um, and was you know, you know, the primary currency. And uh, furthermore, a lot of people, um, the way Blue Jacket tells it to me, um, we're still really jaded and kind of alienated by the depression and had a great mistrust of banks. Um, so there are certain folks that had their entire life savings, you know, in their house or in a business or something like that, because they thought it was safer there as opposed to, uh, in a, in an actual bank. Okay. Uh, I think a lot of people who are listening to us have probably thought, Hey, we've mentioned this 1948 murder twice now in the conversation. Um, could you walk us through that, please? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll leave some things uh, unsaid because I think uh, it's probably best read um, as opposed to kind of uh, narrating. But essentially, the, the situation was such that um, one day on a, I guess this would be a Friday, um, Blue Jacket was uh, at, on a burglary in Pawhuska, and he was driving home uh, at night. And he's dozing off in the back seat. It's probably like two in the morning or something. And his two friends are in the front seat, Bobby Wilson uh, and a guy named Louis Rodriguez. And Blue Jack is kind of groggily coming to, and the two guys are arguing up front. And uh, Louis telling this story that basically this guy named Bill Klein had assaulted him um, at a stoplight earlier that day and challenged him to a fight. And Bobby Wilson saying, well, why didn't you just fight him then? And he's like, well, I'm out on bond. If I get in trouble uh, again, it's going to be really bad news. And so Bobby Wilson says, well, I'll take this beef up then. And uh, things begin to escalate from there. Uh, It's set by the the following night, that Saturday night, Bobby Wilson is supposed to meet up with this Bill Klein character at a skating rink. And uh, this kind of beef, which was really just over, you know, adolescent honor, essentially, um, was supposed to be settled there uh, by fists. So Blue Jack and Wilson, all his friends, used to hang out at a spot named Doc's Pool Hall, which was in the basement of the Tulsa World Building, uh, which was the newspaper. And they're all kind of hanging out there strategizing. And uh, another fellow comes up uh, who's a one-eyed boy named Chubb Harrison. And Chubb says, well, you know, this, uh, this Klein guy is said to carry a gun. And so that kind of changes the whole conversation. Now these guys are thinking, well... Um, we should bring a gun then too. And so uh, it happens that they get themselves a bigger gun, uh, which is a sawed-off shotgun, and they stow it away uh, at the hamburger stand across from the skating rink. And so a lot of momentum builds up to this face-off to where the fight's happening now later on in the night, Wilson versus Klein guy, and Klein's got his pocket, um, he got his hand in his pocket like he has a gun. So someone shouts, he's got a gun. Blue Jacket jumps over into the cafeteria, grabs the sawed-off shotgun, uh, and there's a standoff. And from there, things escalate quite a bit. Um, 
but the result is, and again, I think it's better to be, to be read going into details, but the result is that the Klein um, boy dies in the process and it sets off, um, which was at the time the most sensational trial Tulsa had ever seen. Um, the story remained front page news for the two weeks leading up to the trial, which is a pretty quick, quick turnaround for a trial. Um, and was really problematic from kind of a due process standpoint because uh, they were unable to find a juror who hadn't heard or read about the trial um, in detail. Uh, and so that's a whole other kind of component is, is it, we get into the, the witnesses and, and the deliberating and things like that. But that, that's kind of the, the background there on that one. And uh, Blue Jack was sentenced to uh, 99 years uh, for first-degree manslaughter uh, as a result. What was his time like in prison? Um, his time in prison was he arrived at a, a pretty interesting uh, period. He was originally at Oklahoma State Penitentiary, McAllister, and then was transferred in uh, 49 to Oklahoma State Reformatory. And when he arrived at uh, the Reformatory, it was really had been built initially like 30 years before as this kind of almost utopian um, place for rehabilitation. It was very, uh, you know, it was founded by uh, a social justice crusader named Kate Barnard um, with the idea that this would be a humanitarian place to uh, basically for lawmakers to remake, uh, lawbreakers to remake themselves. Um, however, due to um, kind of the failed politics at the time under, under uh, funding, uh, a lack of um, quality guards and administration. By the time Blue Jacket arrives there, it's just this kind of uh, hellacious dungeon uh, where abuse is rampant. Um, there's no resources to be found. Structurally, the place is falling apart. <clears throat> now, Blue Jackets witnesses that, but he's also arriving at a time when a few riots have taken place. And so the Oklahoma legislature, as well as the Charities and Corrections Department, which kind of was the early Department of Corrections, realized the change needed to be made. And so they replaced the warden with a guy named Joe Harp. And Joe Harp's idea was let's completely overhaul this, uh, this system and uh, create a place that, that puts emphasis on the human being and kind of self-development and self-expression. So as a result, um, a prison newspaper was introduced, prison sports teams, <clears throat> the first accredited high school behind prison walls, a grade school, a host of other resources, band, musical bands, things like that. So it happened to be the Blue Jacket um, kind of for the first time got a quality education um, right as these things were implemented and kind of became the poster boy for a lot of these programs. Um, so his life in prison was difficult in a lot of ways, but um, the way he's told it to me, it was also the first time that he kind of was able to look inwards at himself and kind of begin uh, maturation and self-development. Um, so there is this kind of, that kind of paradox um, with his prison experience. And I'm guessing, given that you met him at a tire store and uh, interviewed him, that he did not, in fact, spend 99 years in prison. No. So, you know, I, I covered the trial in a way that I have my own opinions on it, um, but I wanted to leave it open to interpretation to some extent um, for the reader. But, you know, it, one one thing I feel very strongly about is that his sentencing was um, completely overboard and was kind of an attempt to grandstand by the county attorney um, where just 99 years for what actually occurred and what was essentially seemed to be an accidental killing is just, you know, ridiculous. So I think his lawyer, Frank Hickman, who's a famous defense attorney, 
um, use that as a basis for an appeal, a series of appeals over the over the fifties. Um, and he essentially got originally got his sentence reduced to twenty five years in nineteen fifty. Um, so that was a start. And then Blue Jacket, you know, he's a, we haven't talked too much about his personality yet, but he's a, he's a true character and is extremely charismatic where he's kind of like some people describe some politicians where it's like, if you put him in a room, everyone is suddenly transfixed on him. And so, you know, whether he's in prison, out on the street, in a restaurant, he's going to be the center of attention. And so through being in prison, he actually had a lot of access to policymakers and people on the parole board that would be touring through the uh, institution for whatever reason. And so he became good friends with uh, guys on the parole board, like uh, a man named Charlie Chestnut and a guy named Tex Bynum. And uh, through them and some support of some journalists like Nolan Bullock, he was able to actually get before the parole board in 1957 um, and was paroled in that year, uh, which was a uh, quite a drastic cut from uh, doing 99 years, which I think he'd still be in until 2047, uh, if that were the case. In what ways do you think Bobby Blue Jacket's story, his biography, how does it inform larger narratives and trends in American history? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I wouldn't have undertaken his story um, if I didn't think that that his life achieved that um, in some form or fashion. I mean, to me, a lot of the guys that inspired me when I was younger in terms of historians or kind of what you call like micro historians um, where you're focusing on um, a kind of hyper-specific locale or person. Um, and I think the idea there is that we can often better understand a time and place uh, by focusing on what everyday life was like or less prominent figures than we could necessarily reading a presidential biography or kind of classic great man style history. And so I think by looking at someone like Blue Jacket, who by all accounts had an extraordinary life that I don't think you could count as every day, uh, he came from a place where um, history rarely places its eyes upon. Um, And so I think through his life, we can kind of see this intersection of early Native American white relations. Uh, We didn't talk about this earlier, but he was a a student at the uh, Indian boarding schools, which of course was part of the larger uh, attempt to assimilate Native Americans and destroy their culture. Um, To even the crime history stuff says a lot about how civil society and kind of morality and stuff was looked at at the time. So he's kind of is like the Zelig figure for Midwestern America in my eyes. And, and on top of that, what was most interesting probably to me was not that he was present in all these circumstances, but that he has a very distinct point of view about everything. So I feel like he gave me the opportunity to not only track what happened in kind of these more shadowy corners of American history, but to get um, an authentic viewpoint upon those. So where's the, where's the book available? Uh, the book is available at firsttoknock.com and uh, selected uh, independent bookstores. Excellent. Well, uh, Michael P. Daly, thank you very much for talking with me today. Hey, thanks so much. This is great. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. Again, we will be back to North Korea and talking about Kim Jong-il next week. As always, the podcast is on social media, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T, And we are on iTunes. Please do give us ratings and reviews, and please support the podcast. Uh, Those of you who contribute a little bit every month make this possible. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. (laughs) 